On this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show, we'll be talking about a really touchy subject, obesity in the church. About 42% of Americans are overweight, and this is a metabolic disaster waiting to happen. Hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, sleep apnea, and more are all correlated with obesity and being overweight. Obesity, sadly, is not foreign to those in pastoral ministry nor the congregations they serve. In fact, Christians are just as overweight as everyone else. So where's the countercultural witness? Well, joining me today to talk about these issues and more on this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show is the Reverend Dr. Robert Fawcett, pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Greenville, Alabama. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey there, and welcome back to the Anthony Bradley Show. I am excited to be recording a podcast again. I am really thrilled to talk about a topic today that that is near and dear to my heart for lots of reasons. I am really concerned as we look around the country, the level of obesity that we have in our world today, and particularly, I am increasingly concerned about the obesity that we see in churches. So we're going to have a conversation today with the Reverend Dr. Robert Fawcett, uh, who's going to engage us on that discussion. Let me start by just reading some statistics, just to give us a sense of how bad the problem is in this country. The U.S. obesity prevalence rate as of March 2020 was 41.9%. So think about that, folks. So 42% of Americans are obese. From 1999 to 2020, the obesity rate increased from 30.5% to 41.9%. During the same time, the prevalence of severe obesity increased from 4.7% to 9.2%. And if you think this is just simply a malady that doesn't have implications, you're wrong. Here's why. Obesity-related conditions include heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, and certain types of cancer. These are among the leading causes of preventable and premature health. So think about that. So much of the heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, cancer, all of these things are related to overconsumption of food and sugary drinks and things like that. The estimated annual medical cost of obesity in the United States and by the way, all this data is from the CDC, was nearly $173 billion in 2019. Medical costs for adults who had obesity were about $2,000 higher than medical costs for people who were healthy in terms of their weight. So we have a massive adult obesity problem. We also have, and you've seen this if you've walked into a park, gone to an amusement park. You've probably seen this in schools. We also are having a childhood obesity epidemic as well. It is a very, very serious problem. Uh, For children and adolescents age 2 to 19 years old, from the years 2017 to 2020, the prevalence of obesity was 19.7% and affected about 14.7 million children and adolescents. Obesity prevalence, I think about, I think, hear this. Obesity prevalence was 12.7% among two to five year olds. So by the age of five, we're already at 13% obesity. 2.7% among six to 11 year olds, 22% among 12 to 19 year olds. 
Childhood obesity is also more common among certain populations. For example, Hispanic children have an obesity prevalence of 26.2%, non-Hispanic black children, 24.8%, and 16.6% among non-Hispanic white children, 9% for uh, Asian children. Obesity-related conditions include, think about this for children, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, type 2 diabetes, breathing problems such as asthma and sleep apnea, and joint issues. And what's even more fascinating, folks, is when you look at the map of America and you highlight the states that have the highest obesity prevalence, what you find is it tends to be the states that are red states. It also tends to be the states that have some of the highest concentrations of evangelical Christianity. For example, leading the nation in obesity is Mississippi, followed by West Virginia, Alabama, Louisiana, Indiana, Kentucky, Delaware, Iowa, Arkansas, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Texas, Tennessee, Ohio, Kansas, Michigan, and on and on and on. Georgia, Missouri, Nebraska, North Carolina. Where's New England? All the liberals out in the Pacific Northwest. You know what they are? They're at the bottom. So you have this concentration of obesity that is conjoined with, interestingly enough, high prevalence of the nodes of evangelical Christianity. Well, joining us today to talk about this is the Reverend Dr. Robert Fawcett. He serves as the pastor of the historic First Presbyterian Church of Greenville, Alabama. He and his wife, Mag, they married in 2002 and have three sons, Sawyer, Maxwell, and Henry. He has previously served as a musician and teacher, a college pastor, youth pastor, a pastor of music, worship, and education, and a college professor. He holds a BS degree in music education from the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, an MDiv and THM from Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, and a PhD in systematic theology from Concordia Theological Seminary also in St. Louis, Missouri. He is the author of the book, Upon This Rock, The Nature of Doctrine from Anti-Foundationalist Perspective. Dr. Robert Lewis Fawcett, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So we've been talking about this off and on for years, the two of us, and I just saw some data recently that was super alarming, and I thought, I've, I've got to, I have to do a podcast on this. And one of the things I noted as I, as I read the data, right, is that on the one hand, you have these high rates of, of obesity adjacent to so much Christianity. And I'm wondering, as a pastor, why do you think we don't talk about this issue all that much? Why, why do you think churches or pastors are often so reluctant to talk about food and things like that? I think it's a complicated question. Part of it, there's a lot of shame, I think, involved with being overweight or obesity. So when you think about some of the, the statistics you read, you know, obesity, if my memory serves correct, I think that's 30 pounds or more overweight. And then there's, you know, morbid obesity, which I don't even know what the number is, but at 50, 60, 70, I don't even know, but it's high. And so when you look at most congregations, at least in my experience, and I'm in the deep South Alabama, I am two hours from the Gulf of Mexico. I am 
roughly 45 minutes south of Montgomery. So deep south Alabama for most of the rest of the country. When you look at the congregations, for example, just the Presbyterian congregations in my presbytery, they're reflective of just the overall data. So, you know, when you're quoting some of these numbers, I can't remember the exact number, but it's in the 80% of people, like maybe 84% or higher of people in the United States in general have metabolic dysfunction in some way. So maybe that's not 30 pounds overweight, but maybe it's 15 or maybe it's 10 or maybe it's diabetes or whatever it is. And so when you look at a typical congregation, they're reflective of all that data. So you'll find people that are in good shape. They're in the minority. Then you'll find just kind of the average American that's there. You'll find they're maybe carrying 15 extra pounds or whatever. And then you'll find people are 30 pounds and then you'll, you'll find the morbidly obese. And so, you know, for example, you know, if you go to Walmart in my town, which is the major grocery store here, you have to go to say Montgomery or down, I don't know, maybe even to Mobile or, or the coast to get something like a Publix or kind of a more upscale grocery store. Here's a Walmart. You go in there and most of the people, I don't have a number, but most of the people are overweight or in just terrible health or whatever. It's just there. And so our congregations look a lot like that. I mean, if you think about the deep South where we are, it is very much, I wouldn't even call it Protestant. I would just say, you know, evangelical, non-denominational Baptist sort of area. Like I'm the only Presbyterian church in my county, for example. So people don't address these things because one, it's normal. This is just what everybody looks like. And when you show people pictures from say a hundred years ago and say, what do you notice? If they're really paying attention, they'll notice that nobody is fat. But if you start, just start going through church websites and the pictures they put up, there's lots of fat people. And, you know, when you start to talk about issues of gluttony or obesity, instantly it kind of moves to fat shaming, you know, that kind of thing. So people don't want to talk about it, let alone pastors are pretty reflective of that, that same data too. So, you know, for example, I was at General Assembly this past year for the Presbyterian Church in America in Birmingham. And I was talking, I was just sitting with uh, the clerk of my presbytery. I think of him as young. He's about 40. I think he's an avid runner. He's in good shape. And we're talking. And I said, man, next time you ask me to preach at Presbytery, I'm going to preach on the issue of gluttony and obesity among pastors. And then I laughed like, ha ha. He goes, yeah, we'll do that. And I said, no, no, I'm kidding. There's no way I'm going to do that. And when I told my wife that she said, absolutely not. You are not going to do that because the blowback will be so severe for mentioning these things. So part of it, I think is shame. Part of it could be, I was thinking about this before a couple of days ago, because you had asked the question. I think there is twofold and maybe, and probably related. One is that among Protestants, let's just say Protestants or evangelicals, the body does not matter. It just doesn't. So if you listen to around here, someone give the gospel, or if you go to a funeral, you're not going to hear talk about the resurrection. It's talking about, you know, Jesus saves your soul or, you know, you were justified. And so that center part of your being is what really matters in the shell that you have that houses it, that's going to fade away. And so it kind of what you do with it doesn't really matter. It's really just training the spiritual that matters. 
So there's that aspect of it. And, you know, kind of correlated with that is the author, uh, James Edwards, who taught for a long time at Furman. He might still be there, a philosopher. He calls normal nihilism, just our everyday in the water nihilism, where, you know, why the question of why has, has no answer. And so my congregation say this to me, why bother? We're just going to die. Why bother like treating my, my body? Why bother exercising? It's uncomfortable now and I'm just going to die anyway. So why not just kind of do what I want? So which, you know, I'd come back like, yeah, so don't brush your teeth. You know, why would you? They're just going to fall out anyway. Why bother? By the way, don't send your kids to school. They're just going to die and be stupid. What's the point to which they're like, well, wait, that's different. You know, but when it comes to these kinds of issues, I think it's really complicated and there's a lot of cultural waters and not least of which is, is the food environment itself, which makes it so difficult to actually overcome some of these issues. I'm wondering what your perspective is on, on why it is that we tend to overconsume food in general. I mean, we often talk about substance abuse, alcohol mm -hmm. abuse, overconsumption of, of those things. There's something unique about, and by the way, we're seeing this across the West, right? This is not just America. We're seeing this in the UK. We see this in Australia as well. There's something about the way Westerners, and particularly Westerners in the English tradition, overconsume. And I think the problem is, as you noted, because our food options are so terrible, the margin for overconsumption has these deleterious effects, right? So the overconsumption of potato chips is different than the overconsumption of, say, oranges, for example. So what is it do you think that, that tempts people, makes them vulnerable to over overconsumption in the first place? I first started thinking about this years ago when I was having health problems, and maybe we could talk about that later at some point. But there's two guys that really came to my mind. One, and I'm going to get his name wrong. I think it's David Lustig, who is a endocrinologist, researcher, pediatrician out of California, a professor, runs a lab, I think. And he started pointing out all these issues with obesity among children hmm. and saying, you know, the, the whole idea of eat less, move more doesn't work. You know, why is that? And the other guy was Gary Tobbs, who I've read just about everything that guy has, has read. And he actually is the, one, the initial one that changed my life, I think, his books. And he says, you know, asking the question about the overconsumption of calories or the calories in, calories out doesn't actually answer it. Why are people overconsuming calories? So, to something you've already said, if you put, I just dare someone, can you overconsume? What's easier to overconsume? Birthday cake, like just a sheet cake from wherever, or grilled chicken, right? So give a person a plate of grilled chicken and say, eat as much as you can. If there's money on the line in a bet, they're going to do two and a half, maybe three, six ounce pieces of chicken. I say, eat half that, that sheet cake. Here's a hundred bucks. They can do it you know, and they can keep going. And so there is something about the foods of the standard American diet, in particular, when you start looking at the processed foods and whatnot that lend themselves, you know, just, I think bio, and again, my PhD is in systematic theology, right? So take this for what it's worth. This is just what I've read and it's proved true in my life. There is something about the biochemistry of this, that you hit a certain combination of sugars, 
in particular processed sugars, fats, in particular processed fats, and you know, salt in some combination, and you will just consume it until you're sick. I can watch my kids do this. I, if I said, here's a bag of chips, dare you to eat it. They're like, not a problem. Here we go. How about some Coke to go with that? If I said, great, here's a ribeye, eat all of it. They could, but they're going to stop. You know what I mean? There's something fundamentally different about these foods. And it's, you know, we could probably go down this track too. I'm always reticent to, to talk about these things with people because the second you start talking about it, you sound like a conspiracy theorist. This is just historically documented. When the tobacco industry started to see that the gig was up in America, they got into the food industry. It's did. It's RGR Nabisco. You know, and so all those foods are highly palatable. They are designed to hit every last, you know, dopamine receptor. And there's a reason when you eat them, you feel comfort in the same way that I used to feel comfort from smoking a cigarette. It's very much aligned. And so when you look at in our churches, for example, and it's no different from any other kind of backyard barbecue that someone would be going to or whatever here, you know, when we have a Wednesday night dinner, the foods that in people, it's potluck, right? Because this is out. The foods that people bring are highly palatable. They will involve typically something that comes from the natural world that was grown somewhere. But what it's cooked in, what it's adorned with, what makes it savory or whatever is so sugary. It's so you know salty. It's so all these, these different things that one way of thinking about it, does anyone eat corn on the cob without butter and salt? Well, not in the South, right? I mean, why eat it? Right. No, just eat the butter and the salt. You'd be better off. That point you made about about dopamine is really important because I think a lot of people don't realize that we condition our children also to use food to alleviate discomfort, right? If you're bored, eat. If you're stressed, eat. If you are feeling sad, eat. And so we, one of the things that we've done is we've habituated our bodies in terms of our dopamine receptors. We've programmed our dopamine receptors to release when we have processed sugar, processed carbs. I think one of the reasons is that it, you know, like you say, it just makes us feel good. We actually feel better, right? I mean, if I'm having a really bad week, I could go eat some carrots or I can go eat literally half a bucket of fried chicken from KFC. And I'm going to feel great for a while, initially. Yes. It tastes good. And things that taste good releases dopamine. One of the discussions that we need to have, I would say, within the context of Christianity, is where we get our dopamine from and how do we manage our habits with the knowledge that there's a dopamine association with some of those things. And I'm really concerned about the way in which we are not even talking about it, not even thinking about it, the ways in which we habituate our bodies to associate alleviated to associating alleviating discomfort and food. We've got to figure out a different way to alleviate discomfort other than food. In your own life, I mean, you, you grew up in the South as I did, and there's a pretty standard southern southern diet. What's your own journey with with food been like? How have you? How are you eating now? What were you eating like when you were growing up? Let me go back to that point about dopamine. It's so critical. And if you bring this up in a sermon, for example, people are just going to look at you like you're you're speaking Korean or something. I don't know. That dopamine hit, in a lot of ways, is no different than what a smoker gets from a cigarette, right? And I know this because. 
because I was a smoker. <laughs> and so when I read, uh, for example, Gary Taub's book, The Case Against Sugar, and I was already well on my way. I'd already lost a bunch of weight, all that stuff. There's a section there where he describes how they make cigarettes and how they figured this out a long time ago. And so the palatability of a cigarette, the particular kind of tobacco leaf they use is actually very bitter. So they figured out a long time ago that they had to basically dunk it in a combination of molasses and some kind of sugar and where they would just cover those leaves in it and just let it dry. You know, and so when I was reading this, I was like, oh, no one, it wasn't just the nicotine when I would, you know, and just the, oh, it feels so good. It was the sugar included with, within the cigarette. And, the, you know, the thing about being a smoker is that you come to define everything about your life in terms of that. So if, if you wake up in the morning and you need a pick-me-up, you get the dopamine hit and it, you know, the nicotine, of course, like a caffeine or something invigorates you. If you're having, this used to be, my wife and I, when we were first married, because I was, I was still smoking then, we get in a fight and the way for me to calm down or to get a hold of my emotions was with a cigarette, you know, and it's, it works no differently than the way modern process foods work. So you need to pick me up in the morning, kids. Here's a sweet roll. You need a snack. You need some energy. Here's a granola bar, which is basically a candy bar at this point. It's been, <laughs> this is healthy. Good luck with that. You'd probably be better eating a Snickers. So anyway, it's the dopamine part is huge. It's so, so big. But uh, for me, let me just, I'll backtrack and then I'll get to what I, I do now. You know, I was born in 1973. I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. My mom, for the most part, cooked. She was a stay-at-home mom until I was basically in high school. She would cook. Like I grew up eating, you know, bacon and eggs or sausage and eggs every morning for breakfast. Maybe like a cup of orange juice, which would have been, you know, like that, which by today's standards looks like a thimble. I would go to school. She made me lunch and I would just have, you know, standard chips and sandwich with water, or perhaps I could get a 2% milk, a little carton or whatever. There was no snacks in the mid-morning, which virtually every elementary school and high school has a mid-morning snack because how can you possibly make it <laughs> without having some food? I would come home from school and maybe have like a small bowl of uh, Cheez-Its, if you remember those little snack crackers. I don't think I had a Coke, for example, until I was in high school. Growing up, we, where I was in Chattanooga, the closest fast food restaurant was, at least until I was in high school, was probably 15 minutes away. So it was inconvenient to go. So there was tons of processed food in my childhood, but most of what I was eating for meals was real food. You know, home-cooked meal, like evening would be a, a, you know, a meat and three or something like that. No dessert, drinking water, tap water, whatever, you know. It was in high school that it changed. My mom goes to, she starts teaching again. I start, you know, I got to take care of myself in the morning because my dad went to work early. And so I think uh, it was between like Frosted Flakes and, you know, Cinnamon Toast Crunch would be my breakfast, right? With skim milk because skim milk is healthy or so we've been told. Never you mind the sugar content. It's interesting. I, I started noticing in high school, if you look back at pictures, I'm not fat, not at all, but I started noticing I was getting belly fat a little bit of belly fat. I was like, huh, you know, this was kind of embarrassing because I've been an athlete. You know, I was, I continued to be very active all the way through high school, even when I quit playing sports and really kind of focused on music. For example, when I was 19, I ran a 5k in like 18 minutes. 
it's a pretty good time. I mean, it's like a five and change minute mile. I mean, I was, I was busting it. At the end of the 5K, I smoked a cigarette just to prove a point. You know, what a punk, arrogant guy I was. But when I go on to college and it, the food is really on me now, and so this is like early 90s, my freshman year, I put on 20 pounds. I don't even notice except that my pants are tight. And so I'm going from, you know, a 31 waist to 30, 31 waist. So all of a sudden I'm wearing a 34. You know, and this freaks me out. So I just start running. You know, I'm 19 or 20. You know, and eventually the weight comes off and I feel pretty normal, but still there's, I'm always, I get into working out, I get into, you know, lifting weights, all that stuff, but still there's always a little bit of belly fat in particular, a little bit on my love handles and that sort of thing. I get to 25, 26, I move out of my hometown. I go to St. Louis, Missouri for grad school. I start to steadily put on weight, even though I'm exercising. You know, I, I have a YMCA membership. I'm running. At one point, I was I would run eight to ten miles a day. You know, it was kind of a point of pride if I could get a sixty mile week, you know, or something like that. And a pretty good clip. Anyway, get married when I'm about twenty eight or so. Through this time, I've been struggling with the cigarette addiction. I've quit for a little bit. Right before I get married, it comes back again. There comes a point within my marriage, and by that point, I'm working on PhD and. My wife is saying, you realize your toddler smells like smoke, right? That's your fault. And at that point, I'm having some sleep apnea stuff. I'm like 30, 31, somewhere around there. I'm having sleep apnea. You know, I'm not exactly, no one would have called me fat, you know, because this is the 90s and or into the early 2000s. The store structure is still popular and lots of kind of baggier sort of clothes. So I could cover it. No one would think I was fat. And you didn't particularly see it in my face either. But when I look back at wedding pictures from 2002 in comparison to now, I was fat. I can see it in my face. I'm like, man, I, I got like chubby baby, baby fat. Anyway, I'm going way too long on this. There comes a point I quit smoking. It's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And I realized at the time, like, I'm going to get fatter because I'm just going to start consuming stuff. And I know it. So I started working out more. I kind of went on a more vegetable-based not vegan, but a lot of soy was in there. And so, you know, lots of smoothies, that kinds of thing. Along the line, I'd gone for a health checkup and I weighed like 205 and it freaked me out. I was, I had no idea. What was your, your, your high school weight? At one point I was like 145 in high school. In college, when I was at my healthiest, I was like 159, 160, which is right about where I am now. But at that point, I was like 205. And I was like, what? I had no idea. Because it just, it's incremental. It just kind of, you know, creeps up on you. And I was wearing like a size 35 pants. Everything was a large or extra large up top, blah, 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 all that stuff. And that, that freaked me out. And I wound up losing 30 pounds. You know, I'd quit smoking. I think I basically just minimized calories is what I did. I ate a ton of vegetables, just lifestyle changes in general. I got thinner. You know, I've got a picture over here on my desk of when I was holding my youngest on the day he was born. And I, and I look just from a face like, oh, it looks pretty healthy. It's all right. But over that time, basically from, you know, when I hit my mid thirties until my mid forties, things got way more stressful. You get less sleep, blah, blah, blah. I started putting on weight. And so I found about five years ago, uh, there were several things, maybe six years. I can't even remember now. Five years ago. Let's just say five. Several things started happening. One, I started getting esophageal spasms. 
which is this thing that happens right here where essentially your esophagus just goes like this on you. So you're eating something, you swallow it and it doesn't go anywhere. You can't vomit it up, but it's not going. So it's just stuck there. And so you're in all kinds of pain. You just feel it screaming on you. There's all kinds of, it's the worst thing. You're just retching, but nothing is happening. You sound like you're dying. That started happening. And I was like, this is weird. And so of course, like all men, I ignored it because it didn't happen all the time. It was just every once in a while. Let me back up to my twenties. I started getting periodontal disease, which is all gum stuff. And the doctor who treated this, and by the way, I'm not going to show you my teeth because who wants to see that, but I nearly lost my teeth. The doctor said, if this continues apace, you will need implants or dentures. And I said, why is this happening? He said, it's probably your genetics. It might be because you're a smoker. No mention of diet whatsoever. And by the way, my periodontal disease is gone. I told my dentist, I've done the experiment where I will go. This is disgusting, but I'll go several days without brushing my teeth. It's fine. Like I don't even get tartar anymore. Not really, you know, all that stuff. And I didn't lose my teeth. The gum's not coming back, but it's fine. And my dentist has no idea. She's like, I don't understand how this is happening. Like I changed my diet. She goes, yeah, but I don't understand how this is happening. You know, there was that in there. So periodontal disease, sleep apnea, whatever, these esophageal spasms. I already have this heart thing called PVC. So premature ventricular contractions that were going nuts at the time when I would wake up in the morning, it would take 15 to 20 minutes to not have pain radiating from my knees all the way to my feet. So I'd be hobbling around. And so I, I finally went to go see my doctor and his wife is also a very knowledgeable nurse. And he said, well, we're going to have to run some tests and you, you may be on a medication for life. And I thought that's no, now at 45, are you serious? And then she said to me, you may already have gout. And I said, what, isn't that the old man disease? She goes, yeah. You know? And so I was like, I can't, I just can't do this. And surely it, it can't be this, you know, there has to be some change. And that's what started me researching. So long story short, I read Gary Taub's book, Good Calorie, Bad Calorie. It was one of the first ones I read because I'd watched this documentary that's on Netflix. I think it's still on there. I think it's sugar-coated was the one. I read that, his book, and I just did the diet in the back that he recommended that he got from like the Duke University Metabolic Lab or something like that. And it used to be called Atkins, you know, I think back in the day and was they tried to discredit it, blah, blah, blah. I just did that. And I started feeling better. And the esophagia, the spasms went away and my foot pain, my knee, all the joint stuff started going away. And then I noticed that my pants didn't fit anymore and that everything started looking baggy. And so I just, I hadn't stepped on a seat. I wasn't really even thinking about the weight though. I figured out I weighed 207 and I thought, this is crazy. I wasn't really thinking about the weight. I just wanted this thing to go away. And I stepped on a scale and I weighed like 170. This is after a month and a half of trying this. And I was like, what? And I told my wife, you have to, this is crazy. Like what is going on? All in all, I got down to one point without trying to 149. That's not exercise. I was just doing like kind of body weight push-ups and pull-ups, that kind of thing. Wasn't even running all that often. In fact, I don't run anymore for the most part. And I got all that weight and I thought, I, I'm probably eating too little at this point. So I just upped how much I was eating. And so I went from like that basic low carb diet. Then I tried keto for a while and I didn't quite understand how that worked. And I just did way too much fat. And if you try and do way too much fat, way too early, it's, it's pretty nasty. <laughs> 
Then, you know, I discovered kind of the carnivore community. And I thought those people were insane, mainly because there's so many conspiracy theorists among them. So they'll say some really great dietary advice and then try and tell you how, you know, there's a microchip in the vaccine, you know? So it's like, okay. For a long time, I'd say probably two years, I was mostly a strict carnivore. And then I just started figuring out, I just the way my thyroid is, I need to have a little bit more fat or carbohydrate. So I tried up in my carbohydrates for a while, which I felt pretty good, but I started putting on a little bit of fat on that. So I just said, okay, maybe carbs are not the friend I hoped they'd be. So I started upping fat. So you asked about my daily practice. Well, I'll just tell you about today. My typical day, I get up about 5.30 and I in general have three cups of coffee. It used to be straight black, but I started figuring out I need a little bit of energy. So I, I just put a whole dairy, like whole whipping cream or whatever in there, like a teaspoon or something like that. And I put salt in there just for the electrolytes, you know, the cleanest salt I can get. So salty, creamy coffee. And I'll have three cups of that that I probably won't eat until 1130 or noon today. And I'm not, you know, I just don't get hungry. I wait till I feel hungry and then I'll have dinner tonight. And that's it. My lunch today is basically a quarter pound of hamburger meat with some like Colby Jack cheese on it, a little bit of sugar-free ketchup that doesn't have any like seed oils or, you know, any of that kind of stuff on it and six scrambled eggs. And that's my lunch. And you know what, to be honest, if I didn't have dinner, I'd probably be fine because I didn't work out today. You know, I've been eating a meat heavy, heavy diet for four years and I've never felt better. I don't have joint pain except when I cheat. You know what I do cheat? You know, if it's my birthday, I'm going to have some sheet cake and I just know it's going to hurt <laughs> the next couple of days, but I just don't have joint pain anymore. I've never had another esophageal spasm ever. It's gone. My dental stuff is gone. I've never had sleep apnea again. That PVC stuff only happens when I drink alcohol, which I've pretty much quit drinking alcohol too. And I've never felt better in my life. I coach soccer. I coach like JV basketball and soccer. I can keep up with those kids. In fact, a lot of those kids, I'm in better shape than they are. And I'm 49. I don't think that has anything to do with genetics. I think it's just what I've, I've been consuming and just prioritizing, trying to get as much sleep as I can within reason and that sort of thing. So that's yeah. where I am today. And so that's a great story. I mean, it, it parallels a lot with my own. I'm really curious to know as a community leader, I mean, you said you're a coach, you're also a pastor. I'm wondering, why do you think it's important for a pastor, I would say, to not be obese? And what, what, what sorts of things do you think you can say with respect to why it matters in terms of how a pastor treats his body publicly? Now that we're starting to get into the, this may get you in trouble with other pastors. It's interesting when a man comes for ordination in this presbytery, and I'm just not going to walk your audience through all of what that means. The question on his application is the question, do you take good care of your body? I've yet to see anyone say no. That's a guy who's been ordained for years and years and years, or you know, some guy at a seminary who's coming to be ordained for the first time. Everyone says, yes, I try and take good care of my body. And then you can look at a candidate and say, well, okay. I think it's interesting that that question is on there. And I think part of it certainly has to do, and I can't remember exactly where Paul says this. I think it's first Corinthians maybe where he says, you know, taking care of the body is of some value with spiritual care of the body or spiritual care of the heart or mind, whatever being of more 
value. And I think he could say that in light of the resurrection that yes, you should take care of this body. You should steward it well, knowing your death is coming. In the same way the Proverbs talks about taking good stewardship of your money, you know, whatever. I think pastors should be mindful of this for a number of reasons. It's not so much the the hypocritical thing, like how dare you can't speak to these issues unless you yourself have got everything together, which means I can't ever speak about taming the tongue because I have not met the James 3 standard yet. Thank you, repentance and sanctification. But there is the issue of this is a discipline thing. And for me personally, I can't speak to anyone else, but for me personally, my spiritual life improved when I started improving my physical life. And what I mean by that, when I started taking discipline of my body more seriously in the sense of I'm going to be, I hate to use the word regimented, but perhaps structured might be the better word. When I was going to be structured with it, like, no, I really need to try and prioritize at least seven hours of sleep if I can help it. Yeah, because that matters for my mood and that matters for how I'm going to respond to people. And yep, it, for my own anger and my own irritability and feelings of depression or sadness or, and I've got some other kind of weird stuff in my brain, changing my diet and being somewhat strict about it really helped. Now, those things aren't gone. They certainly helped the emotional control aspect of it to where the self-control, you know, for the spirit was in a sense easier. And so when you look at a past, I don't, maybe it happens. I think probably it happened more 40, 50 years ago when the food climate really was starting to change and you'd see a pastor that was obese. Now no one blinks an eye, but that idea of trying to pursue to the best of your ability with the work of the spirit in your life, self-control is important. It just is. So if I was the kind of pastor, just change the, the variables who was not doing this with my speech. So, you know, I don't care. I'm just going to drop a bunch of F-bombs. Sorry. This is just what I grew up with. This is how I am, y'all. That is not going to fly. You know, it's just not going to fly. But with this, again, there's so much shame and people, even pastors, because I've talked to a lot of pastors about this. Pastors at Presbytery have noticed you look way healthier. You look, at one point, people asked me if I had cancer because I had dropped so much weight. But they're like, what are you doing? How are you eating? What are you doing? Are you like working out like 40 hours a week? What are you doing? And I start to tell them and they say, you know, I can never give up bread. I can never give up this. I can never, I just never. And at one point I said, well, if you think bread is worth being overweight and diabetes, arthritis, and possibly cancer, well, I'm not going to say okay to that. That's between you and your God, you know, and of which they just don't know what to do. And I think part of the issue is overcoming this sort of stuff is hard. It's just hard. It's so difficult and it's painful. Yeah, it's really painful. And this is why I've been reticent to even talk about this. Because when you start to encourage people, you might as well treat them as if they're overcoming a drug addiction. You know, it's overcoming some of this sugar stuff and the the processed food and seed oils and all that that monkey business. It felt the same as quitting smoking to me. Just what made it easier for me is I'd already overcome smoking. And so I knew what that pain felt like and I I knew I could endure it. But for a lot of people, because people have asked me, can you give me some resources? Can you do this? Can you help me? I'm like, great. And I'll give them resources and they'll start to do it. And they're like, this is really hard. And I'm like, if you will just stick it out three weeks, hmm. I promise it'll get easier, but it's, this is hard. You know, it's like learning how to do a pull-up. You know, the first one you can't do. Yeah. I don't, I don't think people realize how 
addicted we are to sugar and how addicted we are to carbohydrates and it's everywhere. When you walk into a grocery right. store, it is in your face and it's all around you. You can't walk through an airport, every single convenience store, right? You go to in the CVS, it's, it's all over the place. The concession stand, the football games, I mean, the vending machines, sugar and carbs are everywhere. And if we're all addicted to this stuff, which by the way, we most of us are, all of us are, I would say, you have to have the willpower almost of Jesus, right? In order to say no, because it's in front of you all the time. It, it would be like if, if you struggle with, with alcoholism and everywhere you go, there's like open bottles and drinks right in front of your face. I mean, it's just pervasive. This is one of the addictions I think we don't talk about. I mean, you can be, yeah. because, of, because of the dopamine, you can be addicted to food. You can be addicted mm -hmm. to whatever it is that alleviates discomfort, including cookies and chips and popcorn and chocolate or 17 cheeseburgers or pizza or whatever. I think part of what you're talking about is sort of rehabituating yourself and I would say probably resetting your brain. Anna Lemke has a great book called Dopamine Nation, where she talks about a dopamine fast, meaning that, that the things that give us dopamine, we need to take a break from every now and then just to reset our brains so that we don't become addicted to those things. And I think because we don't talk about this, you know, this isn't a part of our discourse. A lot of people are just out there struggling and failing because no one's even stepping into this minefield of, of talking about our, our food consumption and addiction. That's right. If you consider, let's just say you're on a road trip, where are you going to eat? The way our lifestyles are constructed, most people don't cook because it takes time and you have to, you know, blah, 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 all that stuff. If you're on a road trip, what are your food options? You know, even the places that present themselves real whole food that's home cooked are trash. You know, so for a long time, it took me a long time to learn where I could and could not eat. So I, I can eat fast food. I, like I'm going out to lunch today to meet a missionary today. And I know he's going to look at me like a crazy person because I'll say, I'll order. Okay. They've got a burger on the menu. I'll order that burger. That's fine. I'll ask them, are you cooking it over a flame or is this on a flat grill? If it's on the flat grill, would you please use real butter if you have it? You know, by the way, I don't want the bun. No, I don't want fries. In fact, this, this one place I go, they know me really well and they do serve breakfast here in town. They know I'll, I'll have a side of scrambled eggs with a burger. And people just look at me like I'm nuts for eating that. But you know what? It's actually really healthy. So to learn how to maneuver all that stuff and, and what's more, you know, what we've been told that is actually healthy for us and is billed as healthy. You know, like, so eat Cheerios. It's heart healthy. No, it's not. It's probably causing your heart disease, that kind of thing. Skim milk, it's low fat. Okay. It's high sugar. So people just, they don't even know how to make a good choice. Right. And then there's the aspect of like, it's so debilitating trying to figure it out and trying to maneuver it. Plus if you're an adult, your spouse basically has to do it with you. And if your spouse is like, no, I'm not doing that. I, I like what I'm doing. And then if you have children, you know, just sending your children to school with healthy foods makes them an alien. And they, by the way, their friends will feed them. It's so, so hard. And in the way it's kind of presented by folks like, you know, Coca-Cola or, you know, other groups that say, we're for you is kind of like that illustration of 
me running a 5K than having a cigarette. So eat this food. It's low calorie. Move more. You'll lose weight. And by the way, yeah, if you have less calories, you will lose weight. You could fast and lose weight. You could be vegan and lose weight. There's lots of ways of losing weight, but you're not going to be healthy. You know what I mean? It's so hard. And so I, I hesitate to talk about this, especially from the pulpit, because the amount of confusion, even coming from the medical profession or like, you know, the ADA or whatever is so confusing to actually really help people. You know, they try this stuff and then they fail and they're like, what am I supposed to do? And my doctor told me something different. Like most doctors would say, I'm going to kill myself eating what I'm eating. And then they can't account for why I have a 29 inch waist at the age of 49. I feel so much compassion for people because it's hard. It's just yeah. really, really hard. And it is an addiction. And no one wants to say it is, but it is. I was Googling about to find if any other pastors have been talking about this issue. And I found this 2010 article on the Gospel Coalition by Eric Raymond, who is at the time, not sure where he is now, at the time, he's a senior pastor of Redeemer Fellowship in the metro Boston area. He wrote this piece on pastoral ministry and, and obesity. And he, he had a, a few points I'd like to get I'd like to get your perspective on on some of the things that he said. He makes a case that being an obese pastor undermines your ministry. Uh, it's difficult, right, to sort of stand up in the pulpit and preach about vices when you're a walking demonstration of a, of a vice uh, yourself. What do you think of, of his claim that, is, that could potentially undermine your, your ministry? If you just start changing the variables, you know, you could ask the question, could pornography undermine a pastor's ministry? Yeah. Yes, it could. You know, could drug addiction undermine? Yes. Yes, it could. Does it disqualify being obese? I don't think so, but it, it's possible. But again, I all things considered, you know, our context is such that I don't know that anyone would even really consider an overweight pastor as being a problem, right? He's just like one of us, you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm not sure it would necessarily do that, but I'll put it on the flip side. I know for a fact, me losing weight and being arguably the best shape I've been in my adult life has turned people off in the sense of I make them feel shameful. I make them feel guilty. I make them feel, you know, bad about themselves. So people, you know, I'll pass by them at whatever situation and say they're eating something or they're drinking something. And they'll say, oh, I know I shouldn't drink this or I shouldn't eat this. I, I know you would never do this, you know? And I'm like, I, you can eat and drink what you want. I'm not judging you for that. So there's that sense because, you know, where we tend to see the healthiest people is in you know, show business or the media, you know, oftentimes the people who've won the genetic lottery. And so that becomes the image of, oh, I can never stand up to that. So when you see someone who's actually healthy, it makes them feel worse. You know, it's this weird dynamic. But going back to that question, is it eh, maybe, maybe not? If a guy is fighting through it, what, what if he says, this is a real struggle for me and I'm fighting? And he's, as we would say in Presbyterian circles, he's really working at the mortification of his sin of trying to put that sin to death. Great. That's awesome. That's his particular thing he's got a war against, and that's good. You know, we should applaud that. And he's never going to look like Brad Pitt, maybe. No one will, right? Or Tom Cruise or whatever. I guess I'm showing my age by my actors. But maybe he loses 30 pounds. That's a victory. That's awesome. That's so good. 
know. That's my take on that. He also makes a case that potentially this shows a level of, of worldliness, meaning that, as you said earlier, you're not really being countercultural if you're just as over-consuming as everybody else. What do you make of that claim? Is that a... Is it showing that you're you're being overly worldly by being just as indulgent and lacking self-control as everybody else? I mean, aren't pastors supposed to be the you know, right, sort of model of 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 righteousness, holiness, I would say that way. And it's difficult to be that if you're over consuming like everybody else. There's a sense in which that's probably right, in the sense of the worldliness, that to me makes all of a sudden we're starting to frame it in kind of uh, bad fundamentalist terms, right? You're either in the world or, you know, out of the world, that kind of thing. No, you're, you're always going to be in the world, but not of it. Right. But it's, I think it better speaks to the self-control issue. And then in terms as, as opposed to being worldly, because I'll put it like this. There was a kid who came through Presbytery, I don't know, a year or so ago who had two earrings and he's like 25. That's just what he likes. And, you know, one earring in either ear, which, you know, I don't care. So what? But someone called him out for being worldly on that. And it's like, okay, so what counts as worldly at this point? Yeah, you know, all right. Maybe that guy. Self-control is maybe the better way to frame it. But again, framing it in terms of self-control makes it in terms of like, well, this is easy. Just step away from the plate, man. Well, let me tell you, I've I've stepped away from the plate before but I was still eating the same diet and I didn't lose weight. I just ate less of it. So it's like, okay, I'm not going to smoke two packs of cigarettes. I'm going to smoke 17 because there's 20 in a pack. Right. Well, I get that's improvement, but you're still, you still have the same problem. So it's more than just self-control. I think that's a cop out in the same way. If you tell any person addicted to drugs, just stop. Well, yeah, that's the most simplistic way of talking about it, but no one just stops. Not anymore. And I think it also kind of implies, or it's assuming perhaps what it used to be 200 years ago. Because I think you have to go back like pre-industrial age almost. Yeah, because the the seed oils come out of the industrial age is is an engine lubricant that they figured out they could change a molecule, you know, one molecule of it and feed it to humans, right? (laughs) So if you go back 200 years, 500 years, well, gluttony and, you know, obesity were problems of the rich right? In the sense of they could afford to keep eating and they were going to keep on doing it. So, you know, 500 years ago, if you wanted to appear rich, you were going to be fat. Nowadays, if you want to appear rich, you're going to be thin and trim and talk about your yoga or wherever you're going, as opposed to the poor are the most obese among any because of their their food choices that they have, you know, so forth and so on. So the self-control, I get it, but yeah, if you want to overcome this, there's going to be some pain involved, no doubt. And most Americans don't want pain, but just like, well, just come on, just do it. I think that's, that's cheap. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't recognize how, how difficult and how complicated these issues really are. Are you a hypocrite if you're a pastor who is overweight, obese, over-consuming sugar and high-carb diet? Are you, are you a hypocrite if you're talking about those things and also saying, hey, don't smoke? Don't drink. Don't look at your screens too much, folks. Screen too much screen time's bad for you and your children. But you ate a whole pizza yesterday. Is that hypocrisy? I don't think so. Here's why. 
you know, hypocrisy, there's, if you look at it, at least in the way Jesus seems to frame it, it's a knowing, a knowing cover, right? So the Pharisees knew what they were doing. We're going to put forward this front. It would be more so if he was preaching against high carb diets and all that, and then still doing it. That's different. I think it's a blind spot to be sure that most Americans, including Christians, just don't Everyone knows they're, they're not in good shape. Everyone knows they don't feel good. They, oh, I could be healthier. Everyone thinks that, but they're not thinking in terms of that. No, I don't think it's hypocritical anymore than <laughs> my wife asked me from time to time, do you feel like a hypocrite from the pulpit? You know, because frankly, most of our, our fights happen on Saturday evenings or Sunday mornings. I don't think that's coincidental. And so for me to get up and talk about the fruit of the spirit, when I've had a lack of self-control in terms of what I've said to my wife, doesn't make me a hypocrite so much as it just condemns me to. And it changes. I may become a hypocrite if I say I don't struggle with this, or I don't admit to the sin, or if I don't apologize to my wife and say, I was wrong. And will you forgive me? And I'm pursuing repentance. Otherwise, I couldn't preach on anything. We could ask someone to read the scripture, then everyone just sits down, like meditate on that. So no, I don't think that makes someone a hypocrite. I understand his point, but I, I no, I disagree with that. How about how about setting a, a bad example for your congregants based on how you take care of your of your body to do that? And this this also I would say collapses into the stewardship question. Are you setting a bad example by being a poor steward of, of your body in terms of presenting what a model of self-control might look like? When I was a smoker, for example, I was still smoking while I was doing campus ministry, college campus ministry. That's 04, even as I was working on a PhD at the same time. I, I would smoke on one campus where I was a student. On the other campus, I would not smoke. And I did every last thing I could do to cover it because I thought... I was presenting to young people a terrible model, a terrible picture. Like, why would they listen to a guy who's dealing with an addiction that he's not trying to address, which I wasn't? You know, in fact, the deal I had with my with my wife is like, I think it it was the French qualifying exam. I was like, please just let me qualify out of French, and then I promise I will quit. <laughs> you know, because I, it was such an emotional crush. I think food can be the same way too. It's just simply that. Most pastors, they're just not thinking about it like this. You know, so when I go to Presbytery next Tuesday, there's going to be lunch served. That lunch is going to be 99% not healthy. That's the irony of the Christian church, right? We'll go to a funeral where someone died of a heart attack or cancer or Alzheimer's or, or some other kind of chronic disease. And then we'll go to the church or someone's house where we have a meal together, and it's all the food that killed them. That's kind of the irony of these things. I just don't think pastors are very aware of that. It's just not on their radar because it's just not for most Americans. And so it's it's the same way of like, would being a smoker and a pastor in the 1950s be a problem? No, not at all. I mean, my dad talks about going to see his physician and the dude smoked as he you know, gave him his, his exam or whatever. That's like 1949 or something. I don't know. You know, so it's that kind of the climate we're in. Just people aren't aware. They just don't even see it. Could we do better? Yeah, of course. But we tend to, again, as Protestants or evangelicals, we tend to highlight the spiritual. 
It's really the spiritual. The matter. And there's something to that. There is. There really is to that. But, you know, what I appreciate about guys like your colleague, Dr. Drew uh, Johnson, classmate of mine, uh, shout out, coming to seminary, or like, you know, James K.A. Smith, or, you know, just, just the Greek Orthodox tradition, or the Catholic tradition and how they approach worship. They recognize fundamentally that the body matters. And what you do with your, your body matters. And for me personally, I do think what I do with my body matters for my congregation. It just does. There's the flip side of this uh, between student debt and not having that much retirement. I can't retire when I'm 55. I don't think I can retire when I'm 65. You know, and what's what I don't want to. You know, I look at a guy like Tim Keller. And when did that dude hit his stride? I'm going to say mid to late 50s. Right. That's really when he started coming into his prime. That to me is like Kobe age 26. Right. Except for like, you know, or Jordan 28. Right. For a pastor, you just don't know enough. You don't have enough experience. You haven't lived through enough. I still think I'm stupid when it comes to the Bible. I just don't know enough. And I'm thinking I still have another 10 to 12 years before I might actually be, you know, in my prime time years. And why would I give that up five years later? Like, I want them to throw me out of the pulpit, right? I want them to say, listen, dude, we've heard you for, so you got to go. We need somebody. And then I want to go be an assistant pastor somewhere where I'm ministering to my generation who's not decrepit. So there's all those aspects in there that I do want to take good stewardship of my body because it will be resurrected. God seemed to think that being an image bearer included, you know, this physical life that it matters. And so I want to take that as seriously as possible. I don't see many pastors doing that, but I'm not going to shame them into doing it. Like, oh, see, you're just letting down your congregate. I don't think that's helpful. And I don't think it works. And, you know, pastors often, you you, you mentioned the the Wednesday night uh, potluck. I'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts on church and children. The stuff that we feed children in our church actually, I think, sets them up for using sugar and processed carbs to alleviate discomfort. We often use those things as rewards, right? Which to me is absolutely ridiculous that a child would answer a question about the Bible properly and then you would give them candy. Uh, To me, makes absolutely zero, zero sense. So I'm curious to know, what do you feed your own children? I mean, you're talking about these things. I mean, what what do you do with your own kids? And then I want to talk about some of the things that churches can do to really have better stewardship with food and children. Oh, my gosh. This is so hard because on the one hand, you just critiqued great-grandmothers. You just critiqued great-grandmothers. Somebody's auntie who, okay, you, you did this. Let me give you a treat. Well done. And so these things are way generational. You know, I mean, World War II, post-World War II, at least, right? In which this has been part of the climate. You can look at schools right now, you know, and what kids are eating there or their rewards. My kids own school. If you do all of the, you know, advanced reading stuff and, you know, I can't remember, accelerator reader stuff at the, if you made it through the quarter and you did the right number of things, guess what? They're going to have a cupcake party. But at the end of the year, you get a pizza party, which of course, this was only in college in my mind. And it was a bunch of, you know, fraternity bros who thought it was funny to eat pizza and chips as a main meal. But they give that to kids now as normal. You read books. Here you go. In the church, that happens all the time. I've waged a low escalation guerrilla warfare type fight 
in my church. And so, for example, on Sunday mornings, we're in full session and we have Sunday school plus worship and all this other stuff in the kitchen area. You know, there'll be donuts and candies and you name it, all the kind of snack foods out there. And so I'll be in there and, you know, you'll see kids and adults, their parents going to town. And I'm like, oh, so you're coming here for the free breakfast, huh? You know, and they're like, no, 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 we had breakfast. I said, you're already hungry. You know, and they just kind of look at me like, what's that guy's problem? You know, I don't do it often, but just with people, I feel comfortable doing it. I'll, I'll tweak a little bit. I asked the question to my elders years ago. I said, are we really doing a service to people by providing these things? They looked at me like I was crazy. And then the pandemic happened. It took away all the food. So it was, it was like, hey, pandemic, you know, here we go. Now they're slowly starting to creep back. But I've talked to one of my deacons is a physician. And he sees things a lot like I do. So when he's, it's his month to put out food, those poor kids, they're just not getting all the sugar they want. For Wednesday evening meals, I don't raise a a fuss about it, but people notice what I eat. And so we typically, you know, it's a salad, so everything's pulled pork or pulled chicken or whatever. Typically I will eat pulled chicken if they have it, which is, it's, you know, smoked chicken. Inevitably somebody brings deviled eggs. I'll eat that and that'd be about it. And I'll have water and people are like, aren't you hungry? I'm like, no, I'm stuffed. This is it. I'm, I'm good. Huh? And so you could just kind of see you know, the wheels turning. That sort of thing. Now you asked about my children and this is hard. And what makes it hard is we came to a lot of our convictions and our knowledge after all my kids were weaned and were well into school age life. And so only one of my sons, just because of a, a number of factors, was fully breastfed. And that kid gets the least sick out of all of them. Because, you know, the formula you're using is basically high fructose corn syrup. It was some minerals thrown in. Those two kids who had to be bottle fed, they tend to have more sickness than the other one. I don't think that's unrelated. Even so, you know, the oldest two were well on their way when we started seeing some of this stuff about food and and intake. So we had to wean them off of a lot of it. That said, we don't have a zero sum game in our house because we think that's a losing battle in a certain sense. And because we don't want to hold, uh, you're not going to have any of this and this is so evil. And then they know where they can go to get it. It's more so as they grow. This is actually pretty instructive. Now, my two teenagers, you know, being 17 and 15, you know, I'll say to them like, hey, if you don't want to have that acne or if you don't want to have the dandruff, quit eating X, Y, and Z and it'll go away. And if you don't believe me, just try. If I'm wrong, I'll give you a hundred bucks. And they do it and it goes away. They're to the point where they're like, do I have some kind of social thing coming up? Maybe I'll cut back. But it's teaching them and showing them, and I'll show them examples. And so I'll say, have you noticed so-and-so? I'm not pointing out the kid and just being like, that kid's, have you noticed so-and-so? They're really athletic and they work really hard. And if they're playing basketball or soccer, the amount of running involved is stupid. It's just crazy. Look how hard they're working and they're still fat. It's the food they're eating. And boys, that will be you too. You know, so I'm trying to set them up for, when they're 18 or 19 and they leave the home, what kind of choices? And I, I say things like, listen, when you start getting fat, call me. I'll help. You know, because they're all in very good shape right now. They're all, my oldest one is pretty ripped. And my, my 15-year-old is getting there. Lifting weights will, will do that. The youngest one, it's so hard. You know, he's 10. Everything in elementary school is sugar. All his friends 
each, he can just go house to house, you know, so we're, we're actively fighting. And so the meals we serve predominantly animal-based protein, there are vegetables in there for them, drink a lot of water, but we don't deny them soda. We allow them some of that though. I think we've, we've gotten the oldest one to where he's like, you know what? Diet Coke doesn't taste that bad. Like, okay. Cause it's at least zero sugar. It may be jacking up your stomach acid somewhat, but that's a step, right? So we don't want to be, you know, legalistic and overly legislative on our kids because we know what they face. But at the same time, we're honest about it. We try and serve them good food. This is really a matter of wisdom, right? Because you can, I've seen this both in the vegan community. We've seen this both in the carnivore community with a particular physician that we know. I mean, this can become a religion and you can be just as legalistic and fundamentalist and, and overly dogmatic about this as as anything else. I think what you're doing with your children is teaching them to make wise choices about their consumption and to really think about how they're consuming food and why they're consuming food in the first place, right? I mean, what's the point of eating? If it's nutrition, then you have to make different kinds of choices. If it's comfort, I mean, there's a reason we have comfort food. I think you're perfectly navigating that space between legalism and, and, and wisdom and having having some grace in there as well. Well, you know, for me, I've been down that road because once you lose a bunch of weight and all of a sudden you start to feel good about it, you never want to go back. Never want to go back. And so there was a time, I think I went over a year without having a cheat meal at one point. A year. Yeah, that's including Christmas and Thanksgiving. That's including birthdays. And so I was, because I was like, I can never go back. I will never go back. I will never go back to what I was. And now it's, you know, you can get really dogmatic about it. My wife did not enjoy me during that time, at least in terms of meals. But now it's, I've, I've maneuvered past some of that to where I don't freak out if I have a cheap meal. I could go on vacation. So I went to, you know, close to Panama City Beach in July. And every single night we were there, I had ice cream. And I thought, you know, it's, I may gained a pound or two this week. You're not going to die. It's it will fall off in four to five days when you get home. Your ankles are going to hurt. You know that's okay. That will go away. You know because you still have to live life, and it's you don't want to be so alienating with this stuff. And I have been, you know, to where I've been at social functions where I refused to eat. You know because like no, I just want to be hungry. I'm just not going to do that. In the same way that. When I quit smoking, I would not go in any place where smoking had been or, you know, not doing it. And now, of course, I will go, but it's not my choice, really. I'm like, oh, fine. But yeah, well, we try the kind of the mantra I have with my sons right now, because I think they're every age is critical, but they're becoming men, you know, and I'm wanting them to be able to stand on their own and be responsible and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I said, immaturity is the, the refusal to choose the good. It's the refusal to choose the good. And I want you to be mature and learn how to choose the good for yourself. And the oldest one is well on his way. He doesn't always do it. I mean, he's still 17, right? I don't always choose the good, right? And the 15-year-old, the he's starting to take those steps because freshman year is hard. 10-year-old is like, dad, immaturity is awesome. This is all I want because he's 10. He's a boy. And so we make good choices for him. <laughs> you know, that's what it is. To be. Yeah. I'm wondering, how would you recommend a pastor who's, 
you know, being confronted with this, like what should he do both for himself or his family or his church? Like, what would you, how do you get started on a, on a journey of thinking about the role of food in ministry, the role of food in your church and your, in yourself? How do you get going on this? I would suggest if you're starting to be convicted by this and you're starting to see it and you're really to a place where you want to change. And of course, lots of people aren't. I would say this about exercise, for example. I think most people have got the idea, okay, I'm gonna do this for a month and hopefully I will have lost or be better by five pounds or, or whatever. It's like, no, 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 no. This is not a diet. This is a whole change of demeanor and an approach to food and an approach to a whole lot of things. It's, it's like reprogramming your brain from being a smoker in a lot of ways. And so start researching. If anyone reaches out to you and wants some information from me, I'll gladly take the time to speak to them or give resources. I mean, I can show you books right now where people can get started and just start researching and reading. Cause that's what I did. I went to Disney world after <laughs> watching that. I think it is sugar coated is the name of the documentary. And I read this book at night, you know, in the hotel room by Gary. Let's see if you can see that Gary Tobbs. Yeah. And what's, what's the title of that book? Good calories, bad calories, fats, carbs, and the controversial science of diet and health. So I read this book, you know, cover to cover and I was just overwhelmed. I couldn't believe it. It was so there was kind of this reorientation of my whole mind and my whole way of thinking that just was disorienting. And you're like, this, this can't be how it is because this is what I've heard my whole life, you know, food pyramid, all that stuff. So what doctors have told, you know, blah, blah, blah. This can't be right. You know, and it's actually, it may not be in the back of this book. Oh, maybe it is. I don't know. I read through that slowly and just kind of took it in. And then I, it might be in his book, The Case Against Sugar, where he's got the, the diet in the back. I can't remember. No, Why We Get Fat. That's the name of the book. Why We Get Fat by Gary Tobbs. That was the one. And it had the, uh, I gave it away. That's why I didn't have it on my shelf. I did that diet in the back and I just tried it. And you have to give it time and you have to be patient with it. And most people aren't patient, but just stick in there. Just try and then in turn, I think once a guy or, you know, whoever really starts to recover and starts to get healthy again and starts to feel better and chances are you're going to become a zealot because you can't believe how good you feel. It's like, it's like someone who quits smoking and then tells all their friends, you got to quit smoking, you know, or whatever, or like the guy who finally benches his weight or something. I don't know. Don't be a zealot. Those going to be hard and be really patient with people. And so instead of taking the viewpoint of like, man, you're just killing yourself. Look at you. You need to get better. You've be compassionate and recognize, holy cow, is this hard? It is so hard and it's so complicated because, you know, how many, oh, so much to it, right? But just be, be patient with people. You know, when I'm counseling someone or, you know, a couple on their marriage or on dealing with pornography or dealing with some abuse in their, their past Life, I don't say, okay, we've had a session, go be better. There's no way I would ever do that. You know, in the same way it works, it works with this. Now, one, one last question. Is fasting a part of, of your life at all? I mean, it's interesting, right? My own theory is, is that, that one of the reasons this is such a struggle is that the Christian practice of fasting, particularly in the West, is something we don't do. We don't fast. You know, we pray sometimes, I pray sometimes, but like we don't pray and fast. I think if, if fasting were a regular practice in our lives, I think we'd have more self-control over our choices regarding food in general. That's just my personal theory. It just makes me wonder, 
if there's some wis- some sort of built-in wisdom that God had by encouraging us to fast. And I'm wondering if that's been a part of your, your journey here of, of late. It absolutely is. The way I approach, I've already mentioned this, but the way I, I basically approach, it's, it's not hard and fast on these numbers, but it's basically what's known as intermittent fasting on what's called a 16-8 window. So you eat over the course of eight hours and you don't eat over the course of 16. You know, most people, it's much, much less, like maybe eight, eight hours. You know, that's why it's breaking your fast breakfast, right? So right now it's what? It's 10 till 11 here. I got up at 5.30. I got my coffee. With, it had some calories in it, but it's, you know, just a little bit of energy. I worked out, you know, about 45 minutes, you know, having cooked for my family and all that. I'm starting to feel a little bit hungry. But I know I could probably, well, I did this yesterday. I could go till two or two thirty and be okay without really being like, oh, this is uncomfortable. But but here's the thing. If I just wait on that uncomfortableness that's that's happening, it'll go away. And I won't be hungry for a while. Right. So I typically do this. It's not so much a spiritual practice as it just the self-discipline. I'm just going to wait because I feel better. So it used to be, I, I would feel better, you know, after Thanksgiving, be like, oh, I just ate everything is so good. I actually feel better a little bit hungry, which it takes a while to get used to. But in the past, I don't do this so much right now because I lift weights on the regular and I don't really want to lose muscle mass right now, which is kind of what you will do if you do a prolonged fast. But I have done three to five day fasts. In which all I was drinking was water with kind of a uh, an electrolyte mix in there, and what made it difficult because my diet I'm actually burning mostly fat off my own body. Uh, when you're on a carbohydrate rich diet, it's hard. It's you go crazy and insane. This is why kids get like nuts at 9:30 a.m. after they had a candy bar for breakfast. Carbohydrates will drive you crazy, but when you're more fat, when you're burning your own fat more often, if I'm not working out hard, I could go a pretty long time and be okay. And what's been interesting is the centering that kind of happens with my emotions, with my heart, with the the ease of prayer. I, it's much easier for me to pray now than it was, say, seven years ago, by a long shot. You know, and I think those things are related. I don't want, I can't prove it, but <laughs> I think what Jesus talks about in the, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when you fast, and this is right in the same section where he's talking about when you pray, you know, these spiritual bodily, which prayer is a bodily discipline, they really matter. And so these things, I think, deeply affect your walk with Christ. They can. Lots to talk about, lots more to talk about on this one. I think this is the beginning of a really important conversation. I was really struck by a conversation I had years ago with a Jewish Christian who told me that in Israel, one of the reasons why Israelis will not listen to evangelical pastors is their obesity. Because mm-hmm. if they see a pastor who's, who's obese, they wonder if Christianity is actually true. If the pastor can't control his own consumption, how is it that Christianity is any better than Judaism? Right. And so one of the barriers actually to ministry in Israel, this Jewish Christian told me this, was just, was just simply obesity by Christian pastors. I, I saw a stat at the Southern Baptist Convention about, about 10 years ago. They did a health screening and about 73% of the pastors were overweight. 
of that convention. So there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot to talk about on this one. I hope this is the beginning of lots of important conversations, I think, both in the PCA, the SBC, within evangelicalism in general. I think one of the ways that Christians can be countercultural is to start caring about our bodies and to theologically think about our consumption, to theologically can think about dopamine. I think all these things are interrelated how we raise and treat our children and how we set them up for addictions by the kinds of things that we put in front of them that will help them alleviate their discomfort and, and things that we use as, as reward. So I'm really thankful to have on the program today, really grateful uh, for your time with us, uh, Dr. Robert Fawcett, the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Greenville, Alabama. Thank you so much for joining us on the Anthony Bradley Show. My pleasure. Thanks. I would also like to thank my Patreon supporters for their generous support of this project. If it were not for your generosity and support, this project would not be possible. You all are the most important part of this experience. Thanks to you all for joining us today on this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show. If you enjoyed it, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment on the various platforms where the podcast is heard. And I look forward to engaging you again here at the King's College in New York City on The Anthony Bradley Show.